Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I'm excited today because I have someone who is uh, a member of my fraternity, uh, you know, uh, and, and those of you who have listened before know greatest fraternity on this planet, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, um, and um, he is a senior professor lecturer of education policy and leadership at American University. He's a senior policy advisor to Congresswoman Frederica Wilson in, uh, from Florida. And so I'm pleased to introduce uh, to you uh, um, someone who will, I'm sure, enlighten us and give us uh, some, some ideas and things to think about, Dr. Felton Moss. Welcome, Felton. Yeah, it's good to be here with you, Doc. And um, I, I must say that Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated is the best fraternity. And so if there's any question, I, I think we've solved that one at the start of this That's podcast. right. That's right. <laughs> Two of, of us right here. Um, so I, I want to jump right in with everything. There's so much going on, uh, as usual, week after week uh, in the news and otherwise. But, you know, we've been planning this particular broadcast for a while. So thank you for your patience and getting you in here. I know you've done a lot of great work and and are still writing and putting your ideas out there. So congratulations on that. Um, I There was a, a, a specific article uh, that I read that you wrote some time ago that appeared in the ASCD um, uh, journal. And I, I wanted us to talk about that, but before we get there, I know that you are a senior policy advisor uh, to someone in Congress, so I wanted to start out. Tell me a little bit, and uh, people who don't know you out there in the audience, a little bit about you and the work that you're doing as a senior policy advisor and some of the previous work that you've done, but I'm curious about the work, that work, and what you're advising on and and how you're making your place in Washington uh, and, and, and your expertise felt. Yeah, um, so I, I get the opportunity every day to work for what I believe to be, you know, one of the most amazing uh, congresswomen, uh, congresswomen in person, period, actually, is Congresswoman Frederica um, Wilson of Florida 24. Um, a little bit about Congresswoman Wilson. She serves as a ranking member on the Higher Education Committee, and when Democrats were in charge, she chaired the Higher Education Subcommittee on the Education and Labor Committee. Mm-hmm. But she is most known for her work around black men and boys. She launched the Federal Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys, which mm. is the first federal funding to really study and, and do the work of black men and boys. And we launched that federal commission last year. Um, if you know anything about Patricia Wilson, she runs the 5,000 Role Models of Excellence, which is a program down in Miami where black boys are mentored. Um, and she's working to really make this program a national program. So um, I support her work with the U.S. Commission, where she is the founder and chair. Um, I also support all of her policy work. Um, I advise her during hearings and around higher ed policy and K-12 policy. So 
just really getting an opportunity to hear her vision and really figure out how do we bring that to life from a policy perspective um, is, is what I get to do with her every day. Prior to that, you know, I served as at the Mississippi Department of Education where I led um, the offices of educator quality, where I focused yes. on teacher evaluation, all that good stuff. I was a middle mm-hmm. school principal, high school English teacher. Much of my work is situated in the rural South. So coming to D.C. and, and being able to bring that Southern perspective to policymaking has been sure. so fun, has been so much fun to me. Yes, I can imagine. And and I know um, you you had a, a lot of experience in the South, um, especially doing your, did your undergraduate work at the University of Mississippi and your PhD uh, from University of Mississippi. Uh, I, I remember Greenwood, uh, interesting story, uh, when I was in Connecticut um, early, when I first moved to Connecticut, and there used to be this, this uh, airline that you probably remember that it was uh, Northwest Airlines, um, but um, there was, we used to have to fly into Memphis, and then there was a little, I, I don't even want to call it a, a trailer, but there was a trailer that we used to drop people off from Memphis. We got on this little six-passenger prop airplane, and we dropped people off at this trailer in Greenwood, <laughs> and then we continue on uh, out of the Delta into where I grew up in Alabama, but it was, it's just really funny because that was the only, only thing I know about Greenwood is that little trailer that w- where we used to drop people off out of Memphis. So uh, that's, you know, that's Dr. my story. <laughs> well, you know, Dr. Perkins, uh, Greenwood is just one mile from money, Mississippi, um, where Emmett Till um, was mm-hmm. actually murdered. Um, so oh, wow. you literally, I'm, I'm literally Greenwood, where I taught high school English, and Money, Mississippi are a mile apart, one mile from each other. I literally lived down the street wow. from the Tallahatchie River, where um, Emmett Till was tossed into. Um, so, oh, wow. you, and and so Greenwood is, is rich in history, you know, in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was teaching, I had students who didn't even know um, about Emmett Till, and so I made it. Uh, my business to ensure that they knew the story of Emmett Till, given that, you know, he was murdered and assassinated just one mile from their high school building. Yeah. I mean, and it is fascinating that, I mean, just as you're talking about what history, I mean, you know, that's another big topic that's in the news right now is what history gets taught, what people leave out and don't want others to know uh, it's just fascinating that 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 the children right there in the town didn't know. And I, I mean, there was much same for me where I grew up. There were a lot of of really interesting uh, aspects of of development in Alabama where we didn't know, and I didn't know until uh, much much later. Uh, so I want to go straight into uh, our topic tonight. Um, we we have just over this past week learned about a young man who just walked up to a a door in error and was shot. Uh, and it just it, it, it while it doesn't pertain so much to sneakers, it's I think even better topic for tonight's show is why black boys should matter. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. just why black boys sneakers. I mean, we're going to talk about that, but why black boys should matter. 
And I, you know, my hat's off to um, Congresswoman Wilson for the initiatives that she's had because there has systematically and um, and intentionally been so many efforts by individuals and groups to take black boys off the face of the map. And um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about the work that you've been doing uh, specifically. So not just black men, but also around the work of why it's so important that black boys get um, some intervention around their development because so many aspects of our society are against them. Yeah, I appreciate you naming this. And uh, I think Pedro Negero um, talked a little bit around about the problemization of black boys. You know, this country has sought to problematize black boys um, and, and men, black men and black boys. And so mm-hmm. given that understanding, it's it's overwhelmingly important for us to figure out how do we intervene. And when you talk mm-hmm. about this young man named Ralph who made a simple mistake and, and literally walked into a door. I mean, I've seen pictures uh, of Ralph being posted and how brilliant this young man is. And so right. no matter how hard black men and boys work and no matter what black men and boys accomplish, there's a narrative out here of the problemization of black boys, even yeah. in the fact that he made an error. Um, yeah. There's a level of belief that he actually has, you know, and, and, and we actually dismiss that. But what I want to say, one of the things that, you know, and Ralph's situation is not relative to policing, um, but one of the things that I've been able to work with the congresswoman on is we have a youth and policing forum in Miami. I was down a couple of months ago, um, Dr. Perkins, and what we did was we brought boys together from high schools all across the city, and we put a police officer in between each one of them. Um, inside the Miami Dolphins actually helped the congresswoman pull this off, and she'd been doing this long before me. Um, But we literally put a police officer beside each one of those boys, and we forced a conversation between the police officers and the young boys. Mm. And we called the youth and police And after we sat them beside one another and had them to talk to one another, we then did these demonstrations where the police officer and, and the boys would actually demonstrate being pulled over and, what is the proper response? And then the black boys would say, if I, I responded in this way because I didn't understand what you wanted. And so the congresswoman has been dead set on, like, we've got to teach boys that although, you know, we got to teach boys and the police how to talk to one another and how to respond right. to one another. Um, and, and, and I think that's part of the work. Um, I think we've been asking black boys to do a lot of work, and black boys have been asked to respond differently to the police. We've also got to ask the police to respond differently um, to black men and black boys. And so um, I say all that to say in one final point here, I was in London recently and I was riding in a car and uh, the the Uber driver found that I was from the States and and he, you know, immediately brought up, you know, the the, the Mike Brown and, and, and Trayvon Martin and all these issues that actually happened in the United States and the complex adversarial relationship that black men have with police. And he says that that you know that's not the case here in, in, in London. That we would have, we would have never allowed some of that stuff to happen. And so, not only is this issue an issue for those of us who are living in these yet to be United States of America, but folks around the world are saying 
this country has to do better responding to black men and boys. And I think that's why the Congresswoman is doing the work she's doing. That's why I'm writing about, you know, building relationship with black men and boys. This is why I'm advocating for more programming that would center, um, you know, these kinds of movements and efforts. But uh, I think you're right. There's an adversarial issue that this country has with black men and boys, and we've got to continue to work to to curb that that reality. Right. And, And absolutely unapologetically doing so. Um, I remember uh, early on uh, there were some initiatives that I, I worked on and uh, people wanted to frame them as uh, exclusionary and not inclusive. And I, I told them, I want you to think about it this way, that this is not about excluding people, it is not the exclusion of others, it's the emphasis of some. And so what what we are intentionally doing is emphasizing the health and welfare of black boys and their needs um, because otherwise they won't be uh, they won't be looked after. And and so um, but we have to do so really unapologetically and and be okay with occasionally there will be criticism that we might. Uh, be seen as leaving people out, but I, I don't see it that way at all, um, which is, is you know, something that you wrote. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's the article that I'm referring to um, that uh, Dr. Moss has, uh, has written is entitled Why Black Boys Sneakers Should Matter to Educators. And there's a, a real, for me, a underlying theme or underlying message, and that's the reason I said, like, the sneakers um, is is kind of a sneaky way of putting in, it's like, it's really about what matters to black boys needs to matter to educators, and we've not seen that happen. And what struck me was the fact that in, in this article, you talked a little bit about um, I think his name was Jalen, I think was in the article, yep. but, but the, the young man um, was trying not to crease his sneakers. And I just laughed because I've, I've seen it happen, been a part of that culture. And, and it was like, no, I can't let my sneakers crease. And, um, and your response to him, uh, yeah. you want to say a little bit about that story, but particularly about how you, how you responded uh, to, to him, not and and how he was walking down the hallway. Yeah, Dr. Perkins, I think that what you talk about um, here when it comes to this this complex, beautiful relationship that black men and that black boys have with their sneakers is that this this sneaker is a tool for educators to really affirm the humanity of black boys. Uh, I think what's missing in our system is this affirmation of humanity. We've been dehumanized to be problematic or to be monsters in some regard. And so how do we find something to humanize black boys? Uh, and I see shoes as, as, as one way to do that. And, you know, some folks may argue with me and say, well, that's just, you know, some luxury item. But I think it, it's an entry point for me. But in terms of Jalen, you know, Jalen didn't want to crease in his shoes. And, um, you know, I'm like, you need to be in class. Why are you wasting time? Like, I – you know, I immediately did not take the time to understand <laughs> sure, what was going sure. on with him or to build a relationship with Jalen. I immediately came from an adversarial place. To be honest, uh, the reality is that I problematized Jalen. 
Uh-huh. When in fact I should have worked from from a place of from a place of question to to really understand what Jalen had going on in that moment. Um, and so many educators do that, right? We look yeah. at what's going wrong um, in the lives of black boys rather than let me actually take the time and, and, and really get to know what's actually happening for you in this moment. So so that's my Jalen story, and uh, I'm so convicted by that. I just imagine if I had taken the time to really build a you know, a, a, a thoughtful relationship with, with Jalen around his sneakers, and now I have a love for them. You know, what what could have been true? And Jalen's doing well, but he could be doing even better uh, if right, I had just right. um, contributed to his humanity in, in, in a powerful way. Right. Well, you know, and I, I, I've witnessed countless interactions uh, similar to what you described, and and I, I recall once, and I was in the South, and there, the short story is there was a, there's this policy in this particular school about the hoodies. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, where mm-hmm. you can't wear hoodies, and you can't wear a hoodie. And there was a young man, walk, it was in a high school, he's walking through the, uh, the hallway during during. Um, the the lunch period transition and mm-hmm. and he had a hoodie on teacher saw him with the hoodie on and I'm talking about kids hundreds of kids everywhere so the the teacher yells out hey you with that hoodie on and he takes out running and mm-hmm. he runs and he pulls the hoodie off in kind of mid mid stride and he passes it off to his friend and he just keeps running and the friend takes the hoodie and, you know, just holds it. And so the teacher, of course, runs up to him and says, um, give me that hoodie. And who's, who was that? So the friend is not going to tell. Mm-hmm. And I, so we witnessed this. And so I was with one of the assistant principals. And then we walk away. And a, and a full 30 minutes later, Everyone is off in class. This teacher is still interrogating. I'm not making this up. We had all we went all over the school, peeking in classrooms. We come back around, and the teacher is still interrogating this young, other young man to give up the name. And he's, I'm not doing that. So one for mm-hmm. me, it, it's like it's problematic that the teacher thought it was that important, but. Some of the things that we don't understand, and this is going back to your point about how important relationships are and building a relationship to understand them. And because even though they might be six foot something tall, they're still 15, 16, 17 years old. And so you still have to try to understand their perspective. And so that hoodie the the loyalty and allegiance to his friend is important. And there's some things you should build to try to understand where they're coming from. And so I imagine it could have turned into, uh, if you had not been understanding in, in the slightest, it could have turned into a discipline issue for you. Like you're out, you're out, you're, you're walking too slow and a confrontation happens. And that's why I ask sometimes with teachers, and I ask, so is, was it really that important, really that important that it ended up being a confrontation with the child, um, something as small as uh, you, you, you have a hoodie on or you, you're walking too slow? 
What do you mm-hmm. think it is? And I and I I love the way you frame that that problematizing. Um, where, where do you think that came from? You know, I, you know, it comes from. I, I'll tell you the in the in the in the greatest sense for me, it represents colonization. Um, mm. And when we talk about decolonizing our schools and 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 and, and all of those things, I think this is one of those things that we've got to do. And you know, uh, Bell Hooks talks about in, in teaching to transgress, like all the power and all of this stuff that happens inside of a classroom. You know, it, it's a power play, right? We, we've been taught, teachers have been trained to control classrooms rather than to manage, right? One of the things that, one of the conclusions I came to in my time as a school leader is like, it's not about me controlling. I stopped saying teachers don't have control of the students. Well, I'm not expecting them to have control of them. I'm asking mm-hmm. them to actually manage them and, and, and have them on a journey, uh, not to, to, to control them. So I think, you know, we, we've got to look back into the roots of, of colonization, we've got to look at um, the way in which uh, enslaved people were treated, and I think we, we'll find that many of our schools and classrooms are running the same ways. And so, there's got to be some retraining and some reconditioning um, in the ed space that's really grounded in building these authentic relationships. You know, mm-hmm. you're right. Schools talk about no hoodies. Like, we are talking about no hoodies. Like, what's wrong with a kid actually wearing a hoodie? Like, what's that's what I'm, I'm still trying to understand. Like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and a lot of times it's disguised as as um safety issues. I I'm still help me understand that. Um but but I know you also in your article uh, make three kind of recommendations or three points that I want us to kind of unpack a little bit. First you say yep. that teachers and school leaders can start the work by first being vulnerable. Tell me what you mean by mm-hmm. that they can be vulnerable. How how can they be vulnerable? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think one of the, we've created this distance between the teacher, the school leader, and students, and you've got to have a level of vulnerability, right, where you can share your story, right? I think all of us come to this work with a set of stories where, we may have been problematized. I talked to so many black male educators problematized in the system. And many of them never shared that reality with young people. And so I think that we've got to make the classroom a, a truly a space where we can share our story, we can share our narratives, express ourselves. And I think that this level of vulnerability that I'm talking about is saying also oh, I didn't show up well for you in this moment, or I, 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 I was yeah. stereotyping you in that moment, or this is a bias that I have. Let me correct that. So, so there's a level of vulnerability that I think that we've got to have inside of the classroom space so that black boys and other students as well can feel like this is truly a space where they can thrive and grow. That's what I mean by, you know, being vulnerable, right, and, 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 and saying, you know, there are some biases that I come into this space with, that I, I need to, to reject in order for me to, um, to, to accept or to, to fully accept or come to terms with the full, full, full humanity of black boys. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm going to tell you, I often surprise my students um, at the program that I teach in, master's program, I often surprise them when I tell them about my story of growing up where I did in Alabama and not uh, not being a model student. They just swear. It's like, you can't, you're, you're making this up. Like, no, you have no idea. We're talking about when I was 
in in middle school are absolute terror, right? <laughs> by by modern <laughs> definitions, but uh, I I would I, I go on to share with them. I want you to look. I want you to think about who I am today, and and who if it had not been that I had good advocates in my mother and father, I, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have turned out well for me. But they they advocated for me, and it made a difference. And so all young children, I remember, uh, and I forgot her name, but she she was an educator in Texas, used to say, all children need an advocate, need a champion, you know, someone who can, who will take up for them. And uh, I'm I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Pearson, Pearson. Absolutely. And, and if I had that, but not all children have that. Uh, What's really interesting, I laugh when I think about this, is that my eighth grade year going from middle school to uh, high school, my parents, didn't know and I didn't know I was scared to death too but because of my behavior they thought I was going to have to repeat the eighth grade like not not because of my grades (laughs) but they did they didn't know they thought oh there's no way given I had been suspended you know fighting I've been talking back to teachers they're going to make you repeat I didn't I didn't know and they didn't know and then and so you know it's it's interesting because there's so many parents out there that don't know how to be uh, strong advocates, and so I'm just like if if I had if I did not have just a little bit of advocacy, no telling where I would be. And so mm-hmm. the second the second point I, that you make in your article, you say educators must also build authentic relationships with black boys and other students. And here's the key through conversation. One thing you said earlier really resonated with me. You you talked about people talking to the kids, but also having the kids learn or or develop the language skills necessary to talk about what's wrong. What what is it that's bothering you? What is it that are you, being able to articulate being afraid, being able to articulate mm-hmm. uh being sad? Uh, we we have to deliberately because in a lot of households, people of color have been told and taught to suppress that. And so, I, I love the fact that you say through conversation. What what have you learned yeah. about how how well conversations have helped? You know, this is one of the when you write something, Doctor Perkins, you always say, "I wish I had said this here. I wish I'd done this here. I wish I'd included that." I'm about to give you a "I wish I had included" moment here. Uh-huh. Um, Chris Endem has done some powerful work um, around Pentecostal pedagogy, mm. but um, part of his work talks about cogenerative dialogue, and he talks about if we're going to really move the needle, we've got to bring folks in conversation together from multiple generations to begin understanding one another um, and, to, and to get the world that we really want. And this is what I was really driving towards here, and I didn't cite Chris Emden, but we've got to have some co-generative conversation, right, mm. where we bring multiple generations together and start dialoguing because, you know, what my mother saw or my grandmother, who was a teacher for 47 years, Doc, saw as disrespectful, I may not see that as disrespectful. Right, And often right. this language of he disrespected me, where I don't even see that as being disrespectful at all. Um, because we're from multiple gen- we're from different generations, and so then then you the the teacher 
who is from a different generation sees it as disrespectful. The young man doesn't. He's like, no, I didn't disrespect you. You're going back and forth with them. Then they get into an argument, and then yeah. he's offended for three days. Right, right, right. And so right. We've, got to have, we've got to be open to conversations with, with young folks, older folks, folk in between, to have a conversation around how we're showing up um, and, 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 and so that we're not continuing to perpetuate this vicious cycle of suspensions and being trapped out of good reading instructions. Um, so that, that's why I make that point there. And, and I wish I had cited Chris Emden here because he has mm-hmm. done some special work around, um, you know, cogenerative dialogue. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm excited also in all of this synergy around some of these shows um, in, in May, actually, on May 10th, uh, I'm not sure if you know Anissa Durham, um, but she's written a little bit, and we're going to have a conversation about the adultification uh, of black children as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of we're going to yeah. we're going to continue what we're talking about here. But uh, this was also planned a few months back, and you know, little did we know that this was going to be um, a topic that was going to be throughout. Uh, the the news media about what's happened, how people perceive black children. Um, last year, I did one on the adultification specifically of black girls, but we're going to expand this just to talk about the adultification of black children. Um, so the last point that you made, and I again, this one also resonated with me and love to hear you say more about, is you say, finally, teachers and school leaders must reject the deficit mentality that has persisted in classrooms across America. So tell me, are you talking about a, the deficit in academics? But w- what exactly are you talking about? Yeah, I think that when it comes to black boys, we often we often start from a deficit. We start thinking about what is wrong with their behavior that doesn't align with our views. That's the kind of stuff that we've got to reject. I think I cited Tyrone Howard in this piece where, um, you know, he talks about um, a, a lot of what has been happening in terms of, of disciplining with black boys is a byproduct of deficit thinking, right? We're like, um, this, 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 is what you're do- this is what you're doing. This is what's wrong with you. We don't look at their behaviors as like, why are, they, why are they behaving in this way? What message is this actually sending to us? Is this a cry out? Is this a, a call for support? Is this a reimagining it? And I think I said, um, you know, I, I talked about Bettina Love here a little bit. Yes. Um, and I, I think I even talk about, when we talk about deficit, that if I had complimented Jalen on his sneakers rather than seeing Jalen you know, protecting his sneakers as a problem, right? I started with a deficit view of like, oh, he's doing something he has no business. So let me, let me stop him <laughs> yeah. from doing something he has, yeah. he has yeah. no business. I, I could have changed the entire, um, you know, dynamic of our relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've seen on just, like they say, on a dime, you see the difference when, when and you, you said it, you affirm their humanity, earlier, but I, you can see the change that they have, almost like a, 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 a blossoming of respect that they have when you know what they're going through or what they're talking about or why they wear the sneakers and why it's important. But just to engage, you get a very different response, almost from that point. 
And that's the thing to help educators understand and see is that they just want to be recognized as something other than uh, an object of what they are teaching and who they're teaching to. They want to be recognized for their humanity. And even though it doesn't make sense, whether it is, I don't understand why or how you spend so many hours on social media, we didn't grow up with that. So we wouldn't understand that. And there's so much about the world that they have inherited that we, that's different for us. Right. And so, but we, but we have to take the time to, to respect them. And I think particularly as, as difficult as it is for black boys to navigate this, this world, uh, I just say to the emphasis of black boys, we need to do that. For sure. I, I, I could not agree more. Um, you know, the thing about it is, and I think I, when I was in the article, I talked about Bettina Love's work when she talks about people of color uh, mattering to their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to insert, you know, black boys do matter to their families, but oftentimes when they leave home, they don't matter in school. And often this is perpetuated. Yeah. By black leaders too, right? I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take us off the hook here. Um, That's right. I don't want right. to send the there, but you know, black boys have got a mat. I want to drive this notion today of humanity. Um, that that is so important to me. We've got to humanize black boys, and we've not done that. And you talked about this earlier. We have all these school hardening policies, hardening where we're hardening schools with metal detectors and all these different things. Um, and often when you put those systems in place, black boys are disproportionately impacted by them, right? That's right. Um, That's right. And, and, and so at every corner of the system, black boys are dehumanized. And I, I think we, we've just got to move differently in that regard. Right, right. And, and one thing that I do want to emphasize for people who might be out there listening and, and thinking, reflecting on how they interact with, with black boys is that um, we often say that we give, we give children the space to develop and that we do. We physically give them the space in schools to develop. What has to accompany that space is the grace to develop, and that's mm. often what they are not provided, the grace to develop. And that means being able to make mistakes, and we see so many times where there are groups of people that um, I, I, I tell all my friends, like I, whenever I go to even restaurants and places like that, I'm a student of people. I'm watching. And I have often told my uh, my friends that I I understand why how non people of color are have the the they grow up with the notion that they can do anything they want to do because from childhood uh-huh. I just I like I I observe and eat, and you may have done the same next time you go to a restaurant or you're out in public observe the way those children are allowed the freedom to touch things and to explore public spaces, climb and jump and move things that they shouldn't touch, but they do touch. Um, and, and you will see 
the difference between often the way children of color are interacting in those same spaces where they're being held close to the parent, don't touch that. And my favorite phrase is don't even think about touching it. <laughs> you know, don't not don't touch it. Don't even think about touching it. And but, you and, know, and that's problematic. It's problematic, but it it is rep- I talked about this earlier. That is a protocol that endeared itself in our families and in our communities that came from times when we were enslaved, right? Like, you you can't ask for anything. Like, you know, it happened when when our ancestors were enslaved, and it has carried itself over. And I think, um, you know, Jarvis Givens talks about fugitive pedagogy, I believe. He talks about this, this where we've actually got to flee from dominant protocols of teaching and learning and how our children should be conducting themselves when they're in public spaces, we, we, we've adopted those things from the old, and, and we made them consistently be a way of life, and it's not liberating for our children. It's actually uh-huh. uh, enslavement. And so I think yeah. there's a call for fugitive pedagogy, not just in terms of teaching and learning, but fugitive pedagogy in terms of raising children. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, one of my uh, – we, we were talking, his name is, is EJ, and he works at the University of Mississippi, and he said, you know, um, some kids are taught not to question things. He said, when I was growing up as a kid, I was not allowed to question things. He said, but I'm not going to raise my children to not question things. I want my children to question things. That's right. Um, That's because right. Because it, it builds something else inside of them. And so I think that what you're naming is is a need for us to move into fugitive pedagogy and fugitive raising of our children, our community. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've got to move in that way. Um, so that our children are liberated. Uh, you know, That's right. If you grew up your whole life being told you can't ask questions, and when you get in a college classroom and you're not understanding college calculus, you, you've been raised not to ask questions and just go figure That's right. out. That's um, right. So I think we've got to deal with some of these vestiges of the day that are continuing to, to, to ruin black life and black family and, yeah. and, and black well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, we've already gone over and you and I, it sounds like we could just go on and on for hours here. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and you have added to me and I'm sure so many others. Um, listen, you find your way to uh, New York City. Let me know. Uh, give me a ring, shout. We'll go uh, grab a bite to eat or something and, and finish this conversation. Um, yes, sir. I appreciate we'll make you. Let's make that happen. I'll do the same. I come down to the D.C. area. Um, But until. uh, Absolutely. So, um, (laughs) hey, take care of yourself. And um, and until I do see you go well, stay well. Absolutely. Talk soon.